This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of healthcare. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, we're on an enlightening journey to transform American healthcare, and we talk so much about what it's going to take to really unleash the full potential of the value-based care movement. And one of the more prominent vehicles to which we can make that happen is Medicare Advantage. But we have to be able to understand the challenges and, and explore the possibilities and cut through the rhetoric and, and really understand ourselves in the process and, and using this knowledge of what Medicare Advantage is and what it could be to shape the future of healthcare in our nation. And I'm so excited to share with you, we have Don Crane returning to the podcast, and we're really going to be doing a deep dive on the future of Medicare Advantage and how this can create a uniquely American healthcare system that we can truly be proud of in our country as we move along in the race to value. Listeners, as Eric said, we're so excited to welcome back Don Crane. He's the former president and CEO of America's Physician Groups, or APG. It's the nation's leading professional association representing medical groups and independent practice associations. And, and Don is a highly respected thought leader in the value-based care movement. And with his departure, it was deeply felt by APG members. But Don continues to serve an instrumental role in leading our country in value-based care. He's now an independent consultant and is a sponsor, moderator, and participant in several high-profile industry events like Health Value Week, the National Primary Care Transformation Summit, and the Medicare Advantage Summit, to name a few. He's definitely a valued friend of the Institute for Advancing Health Value, and it's such an honor to engage with him today on this important topic, which, as Eric mentioned, we discussed the merits of Medicare Advantage, and Don's got some great arguments that despite controversy and despite some resistance to the Medicare Advantage program and some of the, the challenges that it's fraught with and, and the need for some oversight and guardrails, Medicare Advantage provides the healthcare industry, an example and an opportunity to really achieve value and truly achieve not just the triple aim, but the quintuple aim. So excited to have Don with us today and excited for you to hear from him. 
Well, Race to Value listeners, another great episode. And if you like what you hear, please feel free to throw us a rating on Apple Podcasts or tell your friends, your colleagues about this important movement to value-based care. Race to Value is here to serve. Definitely make sure to go to racetovalue.org forward slash newsletter to sign up to our weekly newsletter so you don't miss any future episodes. And now let's go ahead and hear from the man, Don Crane, as he's joining us this week to talk about the future of Medicare Advantage in this Race to Value. Don, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you again on the Race to Value podcast. Thanks for joining us again this week. Hey, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, Don, we had you on the show last summer, and we talked about primary care transformation as the path forward to save American health care. And I can't help but think of this conversation as the ultimate sequel. If we're to truly transform our American health care system, we also have to talk, talk about Medicare Advantage. It's simply too big to ignore in terms of enrollment and economic and clinical outcomes. I mean, currently we have over half of eligible Medicare beneficiaries enrolled in a private MA plan, and the explosive growth trajectory is moving in the direction of 70 to 80% enrollment over the next decade or so. And that coupled with this silver tsunami of the aging baby boomer population, that certainly makes MA an attractive lever of health reform, just based on the sheer magnitude of market penetration, if anything. And Moreover, you know, we also have this demonstrable amount of evidence that shows that MA plans are delivering better economic and clinical outcomes. I mean, MA plans really seem to be an area for consumer-centric innovation where certain health plans can offer greater flexibility, inventive care models, and increased emphasis on economic value and unique benefit options, often while still being more affordable than traditional fee-for-service coverage. And MA is far, far superior in the quality of care provided based on the ability of groups to execute on a value agenda with two-sided risk arrangements that allow for enhanced care coordination and SDOH interventions. And it's just an extremely popular program as well. I mean, it's been reported there's a 95% satisfaction level reported by enrolled beneficiaries. So Don, as we begin our discussion today, I wanted to see if you could provide us with your perspective on why you see Medicare Advantage as the more prominent risk vehicle for managing outcomes in the senior population. Why is this a program so promising in the potential impact it could have in transforming the American healthcare system? So I'd start by saying that I agree with all of your observations and your really well-spoken preamble. Basically, you did a good job, but really kind of synopsizing my views. So to get to your question on, so why is Medicare Advantage sort of so well positioned and designed and so forth? And it's a multifold answer, but it really starts with the payment model. I mean, it is essentially a capitated system with CMS sending a single population-based payment to the health plans. Now, they then uh, pay fee-for-service downstream, which we don't like, and we can talk about that. But they also, in many cases now, an increasing number, not enough, but an increasing number, pay capitation to physician groups who in turn pay capitation and subcapitation and so forth. But it creates the kind of capitated model, or at least the opportunity for a capitated model, which is really so important and so fundamental to all of those other virtues that you mentioned. It enables all those other virtuals in terms of SDOH and VBID, et cetera, et cetera. We'll talk more. So I think in a word, I would say it's the right payment model, frankly. 
Don, thanks for that. You, you know, you're making a case for Medicare Advantage as a superior program compared to standard fee-for-service Medicare. And it definitely has better benefits and a better toolkit at multiple levels to address health inequities and improve community outcomes. In MA, you can more readily deliver team-based care with electronically supported care processes. However, despite the clear case to be made for the superiority of Medicare Advantage, there's been a fierce ongoing debate regarding the merits of the program. Most notably, Richard Gilfillan and Don Berwick have expressed their grave concerns for the future of healthcare should programs like MA be allowed to continue to grow unabated. And their position is well stated and expressed concerns ranging from private equity-backed physician aggregators providing per-life investment valuations that are really exorbitant, and the overpayment to MA plans based on risk adjustments, gaming, and the perverse business model, as they state, of MA that contributes to surging growth and extraordinary profits. So, Don, I'm hoping you can provide your response to these criticisms that have been vocalized related to the health plan profiteering and the perverse Medicare Advantage business model that are leading many to call for the outright elimination of the program. And how can we still stay clear-eyed about our views of the MA program so that we can fully leverage the power of capitation to improve care outcomes in underserved communities without collapsing the value movement altogether? So I would start by saying that Don Berwick and Rick Gilfillan are excellent men of high standing and value. And we all, on that, we all agree. I'd like to count them as friends, frankly. I'd next say that one of their overarching concerns I agree with, which is we do need to, uh, quote unquote, protect the trust fund and not spend more money than we can afford on healthcare. We need to get a lot more value out of it. So, you know, at bottom, they're on, on, on an important path, which is protecting the trust fund and so forth, and really seniors' pocketbooks and, and the like. Where I think a mistake has been made, however, is the whole treatment of risk adjustment basically in, in the first the advance notice and now the final notice and the basically the erosion of the risk adjustment model. That is the big single problem. It is predicated on their arithmetic that the federal government pays more for Medicare Advantage than it does for original Medicare. That may or may not be true. There's a some disagreement on that. I think the weight the, you know, the majority of the actuaries that have looked at it see a larger total amount of spend in Medicare Advantage than in original Medicare. And I will, for at least the sake of, of, of this discussion, accept that hypothesis, frankly. But I would respond by saying, well, what's wrong with that? In other words, Medicare Advantage does provide not only better care, but it also provides more benefit, these supplemental benefits that have drawn so much attention appropriately. So it isn't just the hearing, vision, and dental of years, but for chronically the chronically ill, there's a whole slew of other supplemental benefits in the sort of social determinants of health area. There's transportation and nutritional support, and various health plans are experimenting with all different manner of ways to reach out to, to seniors and stuff because of these supplemental benefits. So it makes for a better program with better care. So we're spending a little more for it. I would say, well, you know, I actually think that might be a good idea. This idea 
of there needing to be perfect arithmetic parity in the total amount of payment program to program is to me a false, frankly, choice. Um, paying a little more for one that is superior than one that is inferior makes all the sense in the world to me. I think that's what government should be doing. Put your thumb on the scales where you're getting more value for seniors. And I think that's important. Next quick comment, pay more. Well, in whose eyes? I mean, we do need to protect the Medicare trust fund, but seniors that are enrolled in Medicare Advantage, they don't think it's being you know, overfunded. They think they're getting what they deserve and they're paid into and why they are enrolling in Medicare Advantage and effectively voting with their feet. And you and Eric in the earlier preamble alluded to the astronomical growth of Medicare Advantage. So this is something to be probably celebrated. Well, Don, I would like to talk to you more about risk adjustment. It's such a hot topic right now in MA, and we recently heard about the V2A HCC changes that are going to be made to the risk adjustment model for payment year 2024. And these proposed changes would use new ICD-10 diagnosis codes to the mapping structure and will decrease the number of codes by more than 2,000 from the HCC model. And what that means basically is that there has to be even more specificity and code assignment to have the granularity to understand the manifestation of chronic disease. And it's just going to really up the administrative burden on medical practices. And invariably, this update, I think, is going to hinder care access for patients with chronic conditions because that work is probably not going to be done at the level that it's being done now. And it's really going to hurt, I think, the most vulnerable and marginalized populations the worst. And I know that's been a sentiment that's been expressed. I mean, uh, there was recently a, a Medicare Advantage Summit that you put on and hosted along with Peter Grant and, uh, and other luminaries in the value field. And I know that's a really big concern right now. And we're also seeing that the projected reduction of funding to Medicare Advantage due to this risk adjustment coding change, it could be in the ballpark of $10 billion. So obviously that's going to impact the provision of services and diminish supplemental benefit offerings. And those adverse impacts are really going to be felt by those beneficiaries of lower socioeconomic status, as I talked about, you know, the duels, the the beneficiaries living in inner cities, uh, racial and ethnic minorities. And it, it's such an unfortunate irony since the Biden administration and CMS have been so deliberate in value-based payment policies to reduce health disparities. And despite the progress being made on that front, we're now going to see this draconian V2A coding policy applied to Medicare Advantage, which is really a vital part of the safety net for low-income Americans. And while we certainly need to eliminate the design flaws, as you talked about with MA, and improve the risk adjustment model, it just really seems to me that this V2A policy change is just a Band-Aid that's wrought with unintended consequences that's going to potentially create more harm than good. So, Don, I wanted to ask you – about your take on this coding brawl that we have right now in MA and how do we put this debate behind us to build this new health system for America? I mean, are you concerned that we may be throwing the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to compromising the population health potential of global risk models, which you, which you just talked about, you know, because of these countervailing pressures to undercut MA through these injurious re reforms to the risk adjustment model? Well, there are those out there that would applaud. They may not be loudly calling for the elimination of Medicare Advantage, but 
you can tell that's um, within the platform of those that want to move to, you know, fee for service for all, original Medicare for all. They don't like Medicare Advantage. They don't like the participation of uh, for-profit health plans, et cetera, et cetera. So it isn't beyond the pale to say that we need to really look hard at Medicare Advantage and compare it to me original Medicare and decide what's the better platform to use going forward. So I think it's reasonable to make those points. Now, your preamble, again, was spot on. Let me talk a little bit about risk advantage. So it's a little, was perhaps previously sort of a wonkish term, but it isn't any longer, I don't think, since it's been so central to these, these debates and discussions and allegations. So risk adjustment is, as you gentlemen know, but to repeat for the audience who probably knows well, is grounded in a notion of fairness, that there should be fairness to the payer and fairness to the provider in terms of the amount of funding to cover the expected services to seniors. And so an effort is made through this HCC coding system to determine the level of disease, the acuity, as it's called, of a population to to then allow for an adjustment upward or downward in the amount of sort of base compensation for the services to be rendered. So this is rooted in a notion basically of fairness to prevent paying overpayment or underpayment. Okay, so it's a really good thing and it becomes very necessary when you're paying for a whole population and doing so prospectively. So it's not a feature you see in fee-for-service models but in capitated models, it is a very important um, ingredient. And it frankly makes Medicare Advantage stronger and better and does, to a very important point that you alluded to, also create an incentive for providers, physicians and hospitals, both but particularly physician groups, to provide care to the sickest of individuals, okay? So it creates a business case for moving into underserved communities, or treating frail elderly, et cetera, because there might be more payment associated with that higher acuity. More payment is of course necessary to, to cover the costs of the care and maybe create you know, profitability, but a business model for taking care of our most needy patients who we have frankly not done a good job with in the past. So risk adjustment, very important in terms of fairness, very important in terms of the effort to address uh, disparities and, and equity issues. I'll give you one quick little anecdote that people have talked about many times in the past. And I kind of remember it when they started with Medicare Advantage and then uh, when risk adjustment came in in like about 2006. So my members at the time, all of a sudden started to see this and it caused them to actually seek out sicker patients, frankly. And so this then put an end to the, oh, I think maybe apocryphal story about having enrollment for Medicare Advantage be done on the second floor after a, a large, difficult flight of stairs, which would weed out the seniors that were most sick, the whole risk selection game that used to be played. So risk adjustment, just to summarize, really important for all of these reasons and built in fairness. Now, the problem, of course, is the coding by which this acuity is determined is done you know, by providers. And of course they want complete and thorough coding because they want complete and thorough compensation for the work they do. But there are bad actors that upcode improperly. 
It should surprise us not at all. There frankly is even a bigger, more historical problem with what they call inappropriate payments in original Medicare, but that sometimes mistakes nares, but it's also providers who have over the decades provided services that weren't necessary or inflated their bills. And some of those people are in jail this very day. So the notion of improperly billing the government is, is, is a time-honored you know, larceny that's occurred in, in, in American, uh, all forms of healthcare and other places in American industry. So risk, risk uh, adjustment requires coding to get the fair payment. And you know it carries with it the potential for upcoding I think it's much exaggerated, frankly, by the detractors of, of Medicare Advantage. Uh, but it needs guardrails, and they need to do what they do elsewhere, which is where they find scofflaws that are abusing the system. They ought to make that stop. Now, whether it's a criminal prosecution or not, whether it's a RADV audit that you know claws back overpayments, you know, I'll leave that up to the enforcers. But I wouldn't say enforce the rules, uh, but don't get rid of risk adjustment and don't eliminate Medicare Advantage, perish the thought, because that would be throwing the baby out with the bathwater, this baby that is the value movement itself that we're trying to grow and develop across the country to make for a better healthcare system. We're in violent agreement, I think, right now, Eric. Don, yeah, I appreciate that perspective as well. And as we're thinking about the prospects of, you know, overall healthcare transformation and especially through Medicare Advantage. I think our listeners would appreciate your take on the STARS program. MA has a built-in mechanism that incentivizes plans to account for their performance when it comes to providing quality care. And the MA STARS program contains over 40 categories that measures quality and provides a star-based rating system to plans based on their performance in those categories. And for every star, the MA plan gets, it receives an additional 5 to 8% more revenue between the increased bonuses it receives as, and the increased enrollment. So on a scale of one to five stars, you have to hit the all-important fourth star to get the bonus and the rebates that the program funds. And these bonuses have dramatically changed the behavior of health plans and the providers that are contracted with them to provide services that improve quality of care. In the STARS rating system, plans are held to 50 quality measures like drug adherence, diabetics taking insulin, et cetera. And members experience survey scores that are really important and account for over half of the STARS rating. For providers that share risk with the MA plan, whether capitated or have a percent of the premium deal, when the plan scores that all-important fourth star and receives the bonuses and rebates, they get a portion of that as well as what gets paid out downstream. And in your experience with Medicare Advantage, what have you seen in terms of correlating star ratings improvements with improved costs and clinical outcomes? And can you share with our listeners how the MA business model doesn't follow the natural economic rules in that the higher quality MA plans are actually lower in cost? Well, I would start by saying that where you have prospective payment for a population you do have an economic incentive, of course, to get the population healthy. But as we've seen in the past, unless you have a performance quality measurement program, you have a landscape which does create an incentive for some providers, maybe some even unethical ones, to stint on care. So we saw that in the earliest days of managed care. Capitated models 
could incent stinting on care. And that, of course, isn't totally unacceptable outcome. Thus came the need for quality measurement programs. They blossomed around the country. And in the case of Medicare Advantage came the STARS program. So it's a necessary, I think, component of a capitated system creating an incentive you know, to get these bonuses and so forth and to get the rebates. You need to score highly, as you pointed out. You want to get to four stars or higher. Uh, the higher, the better. And that then eliminates or counterbalances the um, incentive to stint on care because you measure on, on your performance on across all these quality metrics. So we start with it just being a fundamentally good and important program. Don, it's a, a great answer. And I, having been in the, the driver's seat, you know, building a lot of these risk-bearing entities and, you know, taking on delegated risk from MA plans, you know, I've seen the correlation and the and the economic rationale of unlocking that fourth or fifth star and the correlation with how that can really improve uh, clinical and cost outcomes and, and really drive innovation and and just enhance care delivery in terms of uh, addressing, you know, what, what you talked about earlier, the underlying uh, root causes of d- disease and social determinants and a lot of the barriers and improving, you know, care navigation and coordination. It's, you know, certainly a, a program, I think, that is an exemplar in terms of aligning those incentives along with the capitation model. You know, I wanted to revisit something you had said earlier, you know, when we kind of led off the discussion, just in talking about some of the criticisms and you addressing Berwick and Gilfillan on some of their concerns with the program. I mean, depending on how you can look at the the cost structure, you know, there, it's been reported that Medicare Advantage spending may be, you know, 2 to 5% higher than traditional Medicare. And I think that's consistent with what MedPAC is saying in terms of, you know, there might be a one to 2% increase overall than traditional Medicare. But we have all these rich supplemental benefits to the point I just made, you know, that are really driving more holistic relationship-based tech-enabled care delivery that's activating primary care. And it's really creating ultimately uh, better outcomes in communities and serving those that are the most vulnerable and marginalized. I I can't help but think back to... uh, an article that Sachin Jain wrote uh, in Modern Healthcare uh, a year or two ago, and he talked about how these Medicare Advantage plans are performing better on all these key quality measures. You know, there's, you know, those include like avoidable hospitalizations and higher rates of preventive screenings and the annual beneficiary costs for MA enrollees. I mean, they've been projected to be about 40% lower than traditional Medicare. And, you know, we've seen, uh, you know, hospital days, you know, that are, are correlating with that. I mean, 30, 40% lower with some of these higher performing plans that are, you know, at this stars rating level of four and five. So I, I just wanted to see if maybe you could help us further understand what we should be making out of this in terms of the broader value movement. I understand the concerns with the trust fund and you know, just looking at it very empirically, you know, through a lens of, you know, just sheer cost. But when you factor in, the private sector innovation, the money that's coming through these capitated payments that are really allowing providers to deliver on excellent care. I mean, it just seems like the current evidence is really suggesting that Medicare Advantage plans are are really able to to save Medicare money in, in the short term and improve trust fund liability 
and really improve the the health of communities. So I just wanted to see how we as a country can kind of look through that lens, but also, you know, we also have to be cognizant of concerns about these insurance companies that are taking the lion's share of profits and padding their their coffers and there there might be some egregious, you know, behavior that we have to kind of uh, rein in, but you know, how do we bring this all together to create a a Medicare Advantage program that everyone mutually understands is higher performing and, and really delivers on the promise of a trustworthy and high performing American healthcare system. So a couple couple thoughts. One is that the whole discussion here about uh, Medicare Advantage being quote unquote paid more or overpaid, uh, paid more than original Medicare, has stimulated this sort of focus on the two programs and the comparison of the two. And I'll make a couple quick words there. So we've talked and you've asked about the STAR, the five-star program, uh, quality measurement program. Well, there's nothing like that in original Medicare. You've talked about social determinants of health and supplemental uh, benefits that address health. Well, again, that's a feature of Medicare Advantage and it is a devoid and absent of presence in original Medicare. So you see, to look at these two programs and you see you know, fee-for-service incenting more volume and more intensity over in original Medicare. And we see that in some of the statistics that you just alluded to about hospital utilization. You just see these two programs and you can't help but think that Medicare Advantage is the better platform and the better vehicle going forward, despite its need for regulation and guardrails and the like. So I quickly wanted to make reference to that. Next, supplemental benefits and social determinants of health. So I think we all have read before, including articles, seminal ones in health affairs, about some, something on the order of 80% of our, the health status of a population is determined not by medical care, which is represents maybe 10 or 20% of the health status of that population. So much of it more are things social, okay? So whether it's transportation or housing or, or, the, or the like, poverty, those those conditions have more influence on an individual's health and more more influence on a population's profile than almost anything else. And so the, one of the great strengths of, Medi of Medicare Advantage is it has these supplemental benefits that are beginning this new, in a way, frontier, if I can use that word, in healthcare, where we're starting to see those as a, a part of the problem and thus a part of the solution. And so those supplemental benefits are going to make for a healthier population. Now, we're early in the science on it, but the ROI on efforts to address SDOH, as it's called, social determinants of health, social barriers of health, is new, but it's powerful that this is a good way to make populations healthier. It's a feature of Medicare Advantage, and it's not a feature of original Medicare. Thus, Another reason I, I talk about the um, superiority about Medicare Advantage. Now, let me launch into this other item that you've talked about, which is the creation of a healthcare system of the future, one we can be proud of. Um, jumping straight to the fore, I actually think there's been a silver lining within this whole debate about whether MA is being overpaid and the focus on risk adjustment. I think the silver lining is that when we Kind of get through this problem as we will in due course, though, though the movement to version 28 of the risk adjustment model has got flaws and problems. We're going to get through that. 
of it'll be painful and we can talk about its consequences in a minute. But once we do that, I think that we're at a juncture that may actually be favorable in terms of now thinking, you know, look, this program tool was launched initially, golly, um, I can't even remember now. Medicare Advantage was 30 years old. First, there was Medicare Plus Choice. So it is a relatively new federal program and it should surprise us not at all that it's time to tweak it. And it's time for CMS to start thinking less like just a bill paying agency. And as the owner of a nationwide kind of clinical enterprise that's trying to, you know, make healthcare better and improve the health status of the population, there's great opportunity, frankly, to mold, I think, Medicare Advantage in the future to give us the kind of more perfect model that we want. Physician group centric, capitated, VBID, SDOH, all of the virtues we've talked about are an opportunity and are within our grasp. And I think we should seize that opportunity, particularly since the seniors of the country seem to be asking us to do so. I mean, I can remember when, you know, the penetration of MA was, oh, heck, only 25 or 30%. And now it's at 50. And as you said earlier, it's on its way to 60, 70, it might be 80%. So it's going to be the predominant model within for seniors. But as we know and have heard and seen so much, the rest of the world follows what's going on in Medicare. It establishes really the sort of, you know, clinical systems, the measurement systems, et cetera, et cetera. So I think in a way we actually have an opportunity before us to make things a lot better. Well, it's 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 readily apparent that seniors are voting with their feet here. I mean, just the this enrollment growth trajectory in MA. I mean, it it definitely is the the prominent vehicle by which we're delivering value based payment. It's uh, creating these uh, exceptional outcomes, and I agree with you. I think we're going to overcome some of the headwinds in terms of. Uh, risk adjustment and having the right reforms uh, in place. But I also wanted to revisit these the version 28 coding policy changes as well. I mean, that's that's going to be a, a multi-billion dollar impact in the short term. You know, that I think that's going to create some some injury to the value movement. But, you know, one of the things that many leaders aren't thinking about is the Medicare fee schedule as well. I mean, Congress recently voted to cut Medicare payments by 2% in 2023 and in 2024 it's going to be at least a, a one and a quarter percent cut and you know there's certainly a, a macroeconomic imperative to lower healthcare spending and save the medicare trust front from insolvency but it, it just seems like this fee schedule cut you know and that's something that's been ongoing for years and years but it's a blunt force instrument you know these cuts are being prioritized over the more difficult system level changes that are needed to shift this healthcare system towards value-based payment. I mean, everything we're talking about, the innovation and the redesign and the improvements that need to happen in Medicare Advantage, which is that more prominent vehicle, it seems like we we do have some short-sighted thinking. I mean, it's like the saying, you know, if, if the only tool you have is a hammer, you tend to see every problem as a nail. And we have to start thinking about a different tool in the policy toolbox to avoid jeopardizing the progress that's being made in the value movement. And since the creation of ACOs with the ACA back in 2010, I mean, we've been in this foot race between value-based models and these blunt funding cuts by Congress. And these perpetual cuts, I mean, they really, at this point, 
I mean, we'll we'll see in the next administration or beyond, but that is the prevailing modus operandi right now. And and since the benchmark in MA is established on a basis of fee for service spending, I mean, these cuts do impact the movement to value based care and those cuts combined with the risk adjustment changes that we just talked about. I mean, it's like a double whammy to value transformation in the country. So Don, I just wanted to ask you, you know, how do we go about, you know, those listening to this uh, interview, those that are in leadership positions and, and, you know, within a sphere of influence to really make change happen. How do we go about calling on Congress to immediately move on a different model of Medicare reform? And since value-based care is moving at such a glacial pace, I mean, are there lessons we can learn? You know, I think about, you know, we've talked about the Meaningful Use Program years ago. I mean, that really catalyzed uptake and adoption of, of digital health records. Is there something similar that we can adopt to really catalyze value-based payment adoption to really get to this goal by 2030 to have all of Medicare beneficiaries and accountable care relationship? So Eric, you've touched on a whole bunch of good points. Let me speak to three of them now. Let me keep myself on track. I do want to talk about this version 28 business, which is wonkish, but important. I next want to talk a little bit about the cuts to the Medicare fee schedule and the causes and the implications of that. And then finally, yeah, I will draw some analogies with high tech um, and the whole effort to, to put an EMR in every physician office. So let's start with this version 28 thing. So there are ICD-10 codes that we in the audience know about, some 10,000 of them. So that from moving from version 24, the present one, to 28, CMS is going to basically ignore something on the order of 2,300 codes that they feel have been upcoded a lot. Okay, so they looked at all the coding and they saw what they thought were the, you know, the violations and transgressions and that it's kind of like carved out these 2300 they thought were the sort of most used for abuse, right? And so what that version 28 will do is simply sort of ignore those codes. Doesn't eliminate them per se, they still continue to exist. And I have no doubt that ethical physicians are gonna still continue to treat those conditions. But where you don't have a code, you don't get credit for work in that area. Now these codes, amazingly, uh, have a lot to do with diabetes. They, they fall in a number of areas, but the ones that really jump out are diabetes with complications and with, with uh, mental health issues. And by, uh, by sort of eliminating them or not giving credit for them, is almost to create the pretense that seniors don't have diabetes when of course we know they do. The pretense that they don't have diabetes sometimes with complications including severe depression and the like when they do. So this pretense is just that, it's a pretense that actually masks what really is going on here. We should all be candid about it. It's a big cut in compensation to the provider world. So it's a reduction in Medicare and we need to be clear about that. Um, I think it's a unwise because as you erode the coding system, you thus erode risk adjustment. And you heard from my earlier comments how important that is to create fairness and to create incentive to take care of um, underserved populations and the like. So it was a bad fix. It will also, of course, reduce revenue to providers and to plans. And where there's a reduction in revenue, they don't go out of business. They simply, of necessity, 
reduced services and that inures to the detriment of the seniors. So it all falls on the seniors and it falls most um, sort of skews most heavily, unfortunately, on those like the duels that are of lower socioeconomic status and racial and ethnic minorities. And so it's entirely contrary to our policy to address and eliminate and minimize where we can disparities and inequities. So here you have uh, a kind of a pretense encoding changes that's actually going to work against our desire to address um, um, equities and disparities and the like. So it's it's crazy <laughs> you're making to, to think that we've done that, but we have, um, but we'll get past it. We'll need a new risk adjustment model. Some smart people are working on that right now. I've no doubt that somehow this sort of friction point in the system will be in our rearview mirror one of these days. And I look forward to that. Shifting now to the cuts in the Medicare fee schedule. Well, why should we, why should we care about that? And you did allude to the fact that it reduces the benchmark and Medicare Advantage. So it has unfortunate application to basically both camps in, in Medicare, original Medicare and Medicare Advantage. But why are they doing this? And the answer, in my opinion, is they've got to protect the trust funds. Okay, so that much, that much is obvious. But it's because the darn value movement that we so support so fervently is moving, is progressing too slowly. And it's while it's achieving savings and successes in small areas, it hasn't been scaled anywhere near fast enough and big enough. I mean, we need the really the whole nation to be moving into value and fast. And if the nation can't do that, then Congress is going to do what it has already done, and it's going to reduce the Medicare fee schedule. And three years from now, it'll do it again. Now, whether they call it sequester or they just re re reduce the fee schedule, I don't know. But these kind of crude, blunt force cuts to compensation to physician is the means that Congress will use. It will effectively be sort of strangling the healthcare system into affordability. And that is a poor way to run the country, in my opinion. We now need to move to value fast. So let me move to my third point. How do we do that? We need to stop moving so incrementally. I mean, we have to all, I think, understand and maybe even applaud experimentation that we started really before 2010 with the um, with with the signing of the Affordable Care Act, there was programs, that, but it really launched the whole ACO movement in about 2013. So we've got a little over 10 years of experience on that program, and more other and uh, and more experience on other value-based programs, and it's moving just too slowly. Now, there's a lot of seniors in ACOs. There's a fair number of ACOs, but it's plateaued in the savings that is delivered to the trust fund have not been anywhere near what we had hoped. So the value movements, well, well, everybody now believes in it. And that's an important point. You know, 25 years ago, nobody knew what capitation meant. 15 years ago, they were kind of going, well, 50%. But I think there is near unanimity. And that's very important that we need to move to value. The prepaid systems are better. And yet we're not getting there. And so instead, we're getting these blunt force cuts, which will strangle physicians and hospitals into quote unquote affordability. That's a bad way to run the show. So how do we fix that? I think we should take a page out of the playbook from high tech 
and the movement to put an EMR, EMR in all of physician offices and basically digitize American healthcare. So that was done a number of years ago. And you know, speaking broadly, there were carrots and sticks. So there was a large hunk of money available for physicians to draw on to purchase EMRs, EHRs, EMRs, same difference, and that they did. And if they didn't, then they faced penalties in terms of lower payment on their Medicare fee schedules. So the combination of carrots and sticks and an accelerated program basically achieved its goal. Now, uh, we haven't conquered all the problems associated with EMRs. Most of them still are not inter interoperable. And of course, that's hugely problematic. But the day has come when now we've largely digitized healthcare and there is an EMR in virtually every physician's office. We need to do the same kind of thing with a value movement, with the same kinds of, of carrots and sticks, and we need to stop moving incrementally. We don't need to experiment any, anymore. We, we think we know that primary care-centric, value-based delivery is what the nation needs, particularly with the high levels of chronic disease and so forth. Let's get it done. And that's the more perfect system that I think we aspire to. And um, I'm, that's my speech, and I'm sticking to it. Thank you, Eric. <laughs> Don, those are some great insights about catalyzing the value movement. And I'd be remiss on that topic if I didn't ask you about the critical intersection between private equity investment and Medicare Advantage. And so we know the amount of capital being poured into the health sector and the velocity uh, with which it's been deployed is reshaping the landscape, and it's a driving force in the future of value-based care. And several health plan upstarts have already raised hundreds of millions in funding with a billion-dollar-plus valuations. You've got the likes of Oscar Health, Clover, Bright Health, and Devoted Health. They're all tech-driven health insurance players that are creating value for Medicare Advantage patients. On the provider side, we continue to see an investor land grab for physician practices. One in five physician transactions involve primary care practices, and that's a signal that investors are banking on profits to be made in the shift to value-based care models. A big driver of this is groups that are taking full-risk Medicare Advantage, where practices are getting acquired by investors paying anywhere from 5,000 to 10,000 per MA life. And we've seen tremendous investment activity as well in the physician sector, with the CBS Health acquisition of Oak Street, the Amazon acquisition of Iora Health, and the majority ownership of Village MD by Walgreens, just to name a few. So with all of this capital investment tied to the Medicare Advantage business model, do you see this as a bellwether for the value movement? And for those providers moving along the risk continuum, will partnership with private equity be a primary lifeline for those positioning themselves to take global capitation? So let me talk first about the private equity capitalization, and then secondly, about sort of health plans and their kind of role in the future, if I may. So on the venture capital and private equity front, uh, my thinking has evolved. I'm a little hypocritical on it. Let me just say that up front. I do think it takes capital to grow and develop a value-based system, all right? I mean, these excellent physician groups, some of the you mentioned, I, Village MD, and there are many, many others, all the APG members, frankly, takes capital to build those groups. Once built, however, and this is a really important point, and it's seen by the private equity world, 
once properly built and operating, they produce much lower cost care. We saw that in, I think, uh, Eric, you talked about lower hospital utilization and stuff with Medicare Advantage. So these mature systems when operating as designed are save a lot of money in a lot of ways. And so the private equity firms see this. And so their view that there is profit in primary care and Medicare Advantage and in value-based models is in a sense validation that we were on the right track as we designed these things. But some things can go off the rails a little bit. Now, let me talk a little bit about hypocrisy. I actually kind of think that the uh, capitalization through venture capital and private equity of groups in value-based care is a good thing, and we should be careful not to lose that. We may need more guardrails, but we shouldn't lose funding for you know, the Oak Streets and the Village MDs and those others that you just mentioned. So, however, the private equity in other areas, hospice care and hospitals and anesthesiology and emergency room, also grounded in the notion that there could be profit. Those are not necessarily uh, value-based models. And so the sort of standards need to be looked at differently, frankly. And I, I do think we are seeing vast sums of money. Some, you know, are now I think maybe hyperbolically saying that the whole American healthcare system is being bought by investors. I don't think that's quite true, but it is changing the picture and we can't escape the reality that there's a profit incentive. They in, they're interested in making money and flipping these organizations and making 40 or 50% in the space of three to five years. And pure profit motive. It is hard to say that it's perfectly consistent for, with patient care, because I don't think it is. And so we have to, I think, be very diligent now and thoughtful in ways of creating guardrails that preserve the capital we need for growth, but avoid all of the downsides that flow from it as well. So that will be a big task. Now, let me address health plans. They own the American healthcare system at the moment. They have been effectively been given the franchise and particularly in the case in Medicare Advantage, it's, it's, a, it's a fully privatized program. So the United and the Manage and the Edmonds and the Elements, they effectively own Medicare Advantage by by uh, the grace of Congress that gave them these contracts. The importance of that is that I don't think that's shakeable, um, even if you wanted to, and I don't think we should want to. In other words, the Congress has done this. Congress wants to vote in ways and wants to do things that make voters happy. Voters like Medicare Advantage. Medicare Advantage and the health plans of the country are not going away anytime soon, in my opinion, unless we have truly cataclysmic things, wars and pandemics bigger than what we just experienced. So where we've got them, let's make the best use of these health plans. Now they are already highly regulated. They're subject to MLR rules that prevent profiteering, at least in the main, though there might be argument as to whether they're sufficient or not. I think they are. They're under the jurisdiction of CMS, must comply with already many, many regulations. I think that we should use the health plans, that they're not evil, that they have the money, they have the data, they have the wherewithal. We should now make them through regulation. And I say, I think they're willing to do this, but they need to be pushed. They should be pushed to give us the kind of capitated 
integrated coordinated care systems that we want all across the country, certainly in Medicare Advantage and in Medicaid and in commercial as well. I think that's a reasonable trade-off. They can have the franchise as it were basically, but they've got to deliver the kind of system that we need. So that's how I think we need to approach it. The alternatives of going to Medicare, original Medicare for all is you know pure folly. Um, and so I think we make the best of these health plans. The government itself is not in a position to really have a VA system across the United, in the entire United States, nor would we want it to. So that's how I would, I would approach health plans. And I think private equity, I look at them quite differently, harness health plans, guardrails around private equity, preserving capital where we need it, avoiding abuse where we should. That's how I would approach it. Well, Don, it's a great response, and I couldn't agree more. We have to uh, preserve and deploy the capital effectively. We have to be cognizant of fraud and abuse, and I, I do think we have to overcome some of our conditioning as well. And you talked about the health plans, and you know we have to stop the knee-jerk hatred of of health plans in general. And I know it's well deserved, but uh, we but we we need to like formulate this vision where we can turn them into this vehicle to give us the healthcare system that we can be proud of. And I mean, that's clearly the best glide path to success. I mean, they've got the money, the data, the infrastructure, and, and they do want a stable system where they can make a, a fair profit. And but they're already highly regulated. They live with the structure where they're supervised and they're held accountable by CMS. They have those MLR rules, which you mentioned, and those can certainly be further amended if necessary uh, to limit their profits and a administrative costs within reason. And, you know, I just think using them as a vehicle to which we can integrate these physician groups and have them delegate the risk and, you know, to the top of the conversation, the power of this Medicare Advantage model is really in the capitation. I mean, that's where you can ensure accountability for cost and, and quality outcomes, and we have to win this race to value. And so I, in, in this next question, I really wanted to engage you on this bold vision uh, for the future of Medicare Advantage. I mean, at, based on all the things we've talked about, I mean, this is our best opportunity to optimize SDOH interventions, emphasize VBID that works. It gives us a chronic care model. It replaces the acute care model that overemphasizes procedural intensity. I mean, we see that play out in terms of the, the hospital utilization and Medicare Advantage versus uh, traditional fee-for-service Medicare. And, if, and it also allows us a shift that's going to empower primary care to be more valued and in a, a more vital component in our country and, and really be at the heart of this revolution towards full risk, patient-centered, tech-enabled Medicare Advantage. And we, we have to start thinking about the value that health plans can bring, and we have to overcome this fear of Medicare you know, privatization. And you, know, you mentioned that Medicare uh, for all as an approach to reform, I mean, that's a uh, a little bit of a folly at this point in terms of thinking we could actually, you know, have a a model that's going to demonstrate higher quality care. I mean, we it just doesn't, you know, seem to play out in terms of our execution capability at a federal level to deliver healthcare in that way. But you know, I'm just thinking about this vision for Medicare Advantage and an MA for all approach. Even I mean, that seems like it would have the advantages of a capitation system that allows for a variety of benefits greater efficiency, patient satisfaction, more emphasis on social determinants of health. So, Don, what is your vision 
for this future of Medicare Advantage? I mean, is this our moonshot opportunity to create a, a healthcare system that we can be proud of? Well, I think it's the platform that we should use, certainly in Medicare. I think that as goes Medicare Advantage, so will Medicaid and commercial. Um, that's sort of been our experience that Medicare leads and most of the other products and programs follow. You know, I'm being perhaps, well, I'll say highly practical in using health plans. They're a fixture of our landscape now. They're not going away. They're susceptible to regulation. So I would ride that horse. I frankly would. Medicare Advantage is the best program at the moment. We've talked for so many reasons with SDOH, et cetera, et cetera. The health plans do can, can and do do a good job of administering the program. So I would ride that horse. Now, that's just highly sort of pragmatic of me, but it, I think it makes sense, particularly when you consider all the alternatives. The alternative is not moving to Medicare for all and original Medicare. Good gosh, that can't be the case. And the alternative is not also, I hope and pray, that we simply start chopping, chopping, chopping compensation to physicians and physician groups and hospitals and the whole provider community. That is a bad way to uh, run the railroad. A final comment I would make is I, I think, you know, maybe worth pausing on. It's so interesting. So when we first, as I alluded earlier, started talking about capitated systems in Congress as we lobbied and so on, people didn't know what we were talking about. What's capitation? What's wrong with fee-for-service? Race forward to 2023. I think it's actually the case that everybody gets that now. And virtually everybody agrees that we ought to move to value-based models. Maybe some disagreement as to whether it ought to be a bundle or whether it ought to be, you know, two-sided risk or, or the like. And I have comments on that. But basically, there's near unanimity that we move to these models. And yet we have not done so. Why? I think that more attention, maybe science should be devoted to what are the barriers? What's going on there? And in all candor, there are incumbents that are wedded to the status quo. I would include some hospitals among that group. I would include some health plans among that group. But we can't let those groups retard the advancement of value-based care. So some serious attention should be placed on that dynamic. Why are we not getting what we want and what do we need to do to get there and get there much faster. And so I think that's an that's important, honest work that has to be undertaken for the future. Final point, not all capitated systems are the same. As we saw in our recent conference on Medicare Advantage, studies have now been done, peer-reviewed studies that have looked closely at this issue of um, full risk models or upside and downside dual risk models and comparing those to upside only and comparing those to original Medicare. And the answer is just jumped out ever so clearly. Now we knew it, but now the data is there. These globally capitated upside and downside risk models produce lower cost and higher quality. So we've seen it. So we know what the future ought to be. Let's accelerate the future and let's move to these models. Um, I think it's our only hope personally. And if we don't, we can look forward to a future of more sequesters and more cuts and strangling 
providers already underpaid, many of them like primary care physicians into quote unquote affordability, which will serve us poorly, uh, all of us, and, and, and it's not an option. So that's what I would say. Well, Don, I'll, I'll take your vision any day in comparison to the latter scenario, that worst case. And it's interesting, you know, uh, when the value movement was at its most nascent stage, you know, over a decade ago, I mean, uh, we still had a lot of baggage with HMOs and, you know, value-based care was a bad word even. I mean, it just, uh, you know, there was a lot of fear, but I, I wanted to just ask you also, you talked about the health plans, the vision, the reform, the structure, you know, how to, how to take this moonshot. And I also just wanted to engage you on this aspect of the quadruple aim, you know, as well, you know, everyone knows the IHI and Don Berwick creating this triple aim for, for value, which is lower per capita cost, higher quality, better outcomes. This additional aim of uh, physician wellness. I mean, we were seeing physicians burned out at a magnitude that's just profound. And, and now we've since added another aim, you know, the quintuple aim, if you will, around health equity. And it it really seems that Medicare Advantage can can check all the boxes for us if we can truly design uh, a Medicare Advantage for all model that works for our country and gives us that uniquely American system that we can be proud of. And, you know, the, at the very beginning of this of this podcast, you know, week in and week out, we have Governor Levitt introducing us to this this concept of value-based care. And it's a movement, you know, it's a it's a movement that's not unlike even civil rights or gay marriage. I mean, you know, it's it's a it's it's gonna have to reach an inflection point where there's this universal recognition that, you know, we can create the greater good and the higher purpose by by constructing and architecting a system that's, that's going to bring the best out of our nation's healthcare system and really help the beleaguered and marginalized primary care physicians and and really allow an equation to take place where you can have a win-win-win. And, uh, you know, we've all heard about the iron triangle, cost, quality, access. You can't have all three. I, I, I tend to be a little bit more optimistic and think that Medicare Advantage can kind of get us there. You know, and it's going to take, you know, people like you that are out there on the forefront that are leading with the storytelling and, 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 and bringing the intelligence to help revitalize healthcare. And it, it you know, reminds me of a, a Native American proverb, you know, tell me the facts and I'll learn, tell me the truth and I believe, but tell me a story and it's going to live in my heart forever. And, you know, that's what I think a lot of uh, physicians are experiencing right now. They see what value-based care can mean for them and their patients. I mean, they're they're getting uh, pajama time with their families because they're not having to um, document as uh, excessively to to justify transactional fee for service billing. You know, their patients are getting better outcomes. They're able to to, to strengthen their relationships. And you know, you've been a leader for so long. You know, over the last few decades. You uh, previously led APG, Americans Physicians Groups. I mean, this has been a, an association that's really been advancing the interest of physicians in the United States and improving the healthcare system. So, you know, as we're talking about Medicare Advantage, I just wanted to kind of get you to provide your perspective a little bit more on the physician side of it. I mean, is there a story to tell here in terms of 
this quadruple and quintuple aim and everything coming together where physicians and the rest of the healthcare workforce can ameliorate their own suffering and create a better opportunity through full risk Medicare Advantage where they actually can extract more uh, meaning in their in their practice of medicine and, and delivering care to patients? So you've raised some very important points. I'll start with burnout. I think that we've been hearing the word burnout for kind of so long that we're a little jaded and actually underestimate how big it is and how bad it is. And you see it in some amazing statistics, the number of, of suicides among physicians and particularly primary care physicians. Um, so burnout is a huge problem. It is ameliorated to some extent by the payment model. So physicians that are in fee-for-service have to see 28, 32 patients a day and run in a hamster wheel, more patients, more revenue. They can then afford the lifestyle they like and send their kids to college. A prepaid model gives the money in advance and then they take care of the patients that need the most care in a team-based manner. And the pressures to have this sort of frenzied practice are reduced some. However, in all models, we now have EMRs and we've turned our physicians into typists. So there needs to be work done in this area through maybe AI, more scribes, more support. We really need to have physicians practicing medicine and not sitting at typewriters. I think that's a little bit glib to say it that way, but we need to address the burnout problem and we need to do it fast and we need to do it successfully. So there's that. Next, you touched on primary care and we've had whole conferences on this and just in a word, we need primary care because that's the disease status, that's the health status profile of the nation. So 90% of the spend in Medicare is for seniors with multiple chronic diseases. We see that today in 2023. That wasn't the case in the early 1900s when we had a health system that was you know, mostly acute care the diseases from sanitation and really pandemics that to a large extent, immunizations and pharmaceuticals have eliminated. As we move forward in time, the sort of demand side of the equation here, supply and demand has changed entirely. Now we have a population that is afflicted with chronic disease. So coronary artery disease and hypertension and diabetes and the like, that calls for a different kind of system, but also a different kind of provider. A primary care physician, those is, that's the specialty that's most tasked to deal with chronic disease, though there are cardiologists and endocrinologists, of course. Most chronic disease is managed by primary care physicians. So we have an irony at work here. This is the health status of the nation, thus the demand, and yet we have only something on the order of five to seven to three, depending upon the geography, of the total spend on health care is for primary care at a time when we need more primary care, not less, and we needed to rationalize our system. So we've got some serious disconnects at work here. We need to fix the burnout and we need more primary care. And that takes some smart policymakers and some strong-willed regulators and legislators to help make that happen. The private sector is ready for it. These are not this is not something, this is not a surprise what I've said. We've known forever that primary care is underfunded in multiple ways, and that is a, a, a serious problem for, for American healthcare.
Well, Don, on behalf of everyone in the value movement and our listeners especially, we owe you a huge debt of gratitude for your incredible leadership. Your impact in moving value-based care leadership over the past two decades has been immense, and, and true leadership often reveals itself in difficult times. And I would argue there's no more of singular difficulty that could be noted than to take the seismic shift to value where we're reforming 20% of our overall economy. And it's in these moments that great leaders rise above the challenges, inspire hope, and navigate a path towards a brighter future, which I you know, truly believe you've shared with us today and continue uh, that great legacy of work that you've done. And as we wrap up our conversation today, can you leave our listeners with a final word of hope and optimism for the brighter future that is value-based care? And how can other leaders in the, in the movement persevere amongst such seemingly insurmountable odds that we sometimes feel we're stuck with? Well, first, thank you for the um, kind, too kind words, frankly. I'm but one of a multitude of people that are in a movement that see the need for value-based care and hard at work making it happen. So thank you. Thank you for that. I think, you know, this is the optimism, pessimism question. So it's easy to be pessimistic about the weaknesses in our healthcare system, and they are multiple, and we've talked about many of them. The optimistic, what, what makes me optimistic, though, I think, um, and I just mentioned it a minute ago, is that now I think we've got more than a consensus. We now really have damn near unanimity that we need to move to a value-based system. It is a small fraction of the country that truly wants to move to original, original Medicare for all. I think, you know, we have some where there's a little difference between the walk and the talk, and I would accuse health plans of that, frankly, and I already mentioned hospitals in sort of the same vein, but policymakers, um, provider community, physicians of all stripe, I think we all know that we need to a value-based system, which of course is code basically for a payment model that's that you know, perspective and along with all the other features associated with value-based care. So we have that knowledge now. So that's a good start. We didn't have that knowledge 30, 40 years ago. We, so we now know what ought to be done. Next, we see examples of excellence. You look at all of these APG groups that are doing globally capitated care and doing it really well and doing scoring high on performance measurement programs and not going insolvent. We don't know their precise financials, but I'm sure they're doing just fine financially. We know the health plans are doing financially. They wouldn't anything. So we have knowledge. We have good examples of excellence. And so those, that's, good, that's a good start for proliferating it across the entire nation. And I think that the imperative to do so is there. The knowledge of how to do so is there. And so I think it will happen in time. I merely think that regulators ought to put some serious carrots and sticks in front of the horses and so that we move there faster because moving slow is itself very damaging. But I'm optimistic we can and will. And uh, happy that you guys interviewed me today so I can make those points.
Well, Don, it's been an absolute pleasure as always. Thanks for returning to the podcast. I mean, this was a lot of fun. I, you know, I, I learned some things along the way. I know our listeners are better for it and I share your optimism and a better tomorrow. I mean, we, we certainly have to, to get there in terms of uh, universal recognition that value-based care is the way to go. And, and I think uh, we, we've done a great job today in articulating the, the power of Medicare Advantage and creating that new future for tomorrow. Well, great. Thank you guys very much. Thank you, Don.